You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. It's always a joy when I find a story I can tell that's just filled with everything I look for in a good pirate tale. Adventure, exploration, a dash of violence, a bit of romance, and a healthy dose of human drama. And we find these in the really well-documented stories, you know, Henry Every, William Kidd, to a lesser extent, Henry Morgan. And we're going to see a lot of it at Nassau. But this story, it ain't that. It's becoming increasingly clear to me why so few writers and historians have chosen to try to tell this tale. It's a huge, muddled mess. I mean, the timeline alone is impossible. There are a few dates there that we can verifiably pin down, but really only a handful. For most of it, if I were being responsible, I would have to say something like, at some point in 1701 or 1702, this pirate got up to some very naughty things. Maybe. The problem is that so much of what would have been world-shaking news back in 1697, it just didn't rate once the war started. I mean, imagine you're some admiralty bureaucrat walking into your boss's office to tell them about some 
pirate in the Red Sea robbing a Moorish merchant vessel. I can just picture that admiral putting his coffee down and being, oh, you don't say. Well, right now, 60,000 French troops are marching in the Rhineland. King Louis is massing a gigantic fleet at La Rochelle. If you waste my time with this kind of claptrap again, I'll have you out on the street, Johnson. If this kind of thing got mentioned at all, it would be buried in a report on activities in the Indian Ocean, which were rarely read anyway because it wasn't a major theater of the war. Not yet, anyway. So that's the first problem. The other problem is T. Woodward at the Half Moon over against St. Dunstan's Church, Fleet Street. T. Woodward, probably Thomas Woodward, but I don't have a full name, he's the guy that compiled and edited A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2 for the Half Moon, his, uh, his publishing house. He's the one who commissioned the authors, whoever they may actually have been, to write chapters on men like John Bowen and Thomas White. And he's the man who failed to do his due diligence as an editor when those chapters just didn't add up. You know, there are a few big events that they talk about, a capturing of a major ship, maybe, and one chapter will tell you that it was Christmas time. 1702. Another will tell you it was a beautiful spring day in 1701. It's a problem. And what I'm trying to do here is to take all of these stories and piece them together with the few actually verifiable pieces of data we have. What I'm driving at here, the point I'm finally getting around to, is that this is all my interpretation. If I tried to stick to the sources we have, including a general history, it would turn into this weird disjointed historiography more than a good story. And I'd like to tell you all a good story, so I'm aware that, yeah, I'm adding to the muddled nature of this tale and that I'm giving a new interpretation to it, but I think it's worth doing. With that in mind, though, let's return to the Indian Ocean, circa 1701, where a bunch of pirates had just captured a truly impressive prize. This is episode 328, The Most Capable Among Them. The speaker, the ship that these pirates had just captured, was a 450-ton, 50-gun powerhouse. It had started its life as an English man-o'-war, then it had been transformed into a French slaver, now it was being transformed into an English pirate ship. I'd like you to try to put yourself in the shoes of the pirates who just captured the speaker, though. Because there were two separate pirate crews involved in that action. The first were the pirates aboard that Persian Grab. That was under Captain James, who I have assumed to be John James of the Golden Toothpick, you know, the super ugly guy. The sailing master on board was John Bowen. The quartermaster, I think was Thomas Howard, if he was there at this point. Also on board was Thomas White. The other ship that helped capture the speaker was that French prize under Captain George Booth. Now, there were fewer men whose names we know under Captain Booth, but he had a lot more men under his command. And all of these pirates had a decision to make. They had enough men to crew the French prize and the Persian grab, or to man the speaker, but they didn't have enough to sail all three. For a moment, let's put ego aside. 
Let's look at this from a purely tactical point of view. Is it better to keep two smaller, fast, maneuverable craft, or to take one big ship with lots of guns? I, I don't have the answer here, I'm not a naval tactician, but that's a question they were all asking. I can tell you what the pirates at Nassau would say, in about twenty years' time. They would take the two smaller ships. A smaller ship can always run and hide. A bigger ship will attract attention. And no matter how big your ship was, the Royal Navy always had bigger. But it's also important to remember that Nassau had, you know, infrastructure to properly maintain a ship. Madagascar really didn't, not after Baldridge, anyway. The speaker would have been in far better shape. So it seems that the speaker was really the better option, tactically speaking, but what if we add Ego back into the mix? John James was a captain. What happens when a man in his position consents to serve under another pirate? And I mean, that's not a given. They would hold an election for captain, but George Booth definitely had the numbers. He was, he was going to win. So what do you do? And again, I don't have the answer here. And it looks like these pirates didn't either. Some of them, anyway. The crew of that Persian grab were split. Some did not want to join forces, others did. John James took some of those pirates and sailed off in the Persian grab. That left John Bowen in charge of that group of pirates, those who were left over from the grab. He'd been their quartermaster, and now he was their leader. But of course, that split put the odds even more in George Booth's favor. He was easily elected captain, but John Bowen did win the quartermaster. So the pirates began to plot their next move. And right now, I'd like to take a hard left and talk about the Sultanate of Oman. Oman is that country on the southeastern end of the Arabian Peninsula. It's a relatively small country, mostly coastal cities, with a capital in Muscat. Oman sits very near the entrance to the Persian Gulf, and thus, for most of human history, it's been an important piece of real estate for powers in the region. For centuries, different Islamic sects fought over the region. It was controlled for a long time by the Persians and then the Seljuk Turks. But finally, in the 1500s, the Portuguese arrived. Now, Oman was only one of many protectorates established by the Portuguese in the 1500s. In 1624, the Yoruba dynasty took control back from the Portuguese. Now, it took about 75 years for them to secure the entire region, but finally, in 1692, Saif bin Sultan won a civil war against his brothers and took the seat of Imam. For the first time in centuries, an Omani ruler controlled the entirety of Oman. But that wasn't all that Saif was interested in. See, all of those other regional Portuguese ports had become very important to the economy of Oman. The two most important were found to the southwest, namely the Comoros Archipelago and the Zanzibar Islands. Those two island chains were important staging grounds for Portuguese exploitation of the Swahili coast. 
Saif bin Sultan decided to conquer them. It took him about six years, but by 1698 he had complete control of Zanzibar and the Comoros Islands. He ruled through governors, they called them sub-sultans at the time, as well as the merchant princes who were extraordinarily rich and powerful. Among the poorest and smallest of the Comoros Islands was the island of Mayat. Nonetheless, it was still colonized by the Omani. However, as we have seen, the people of Mayat had to make a certain peace with English pirates in the region. All of that is about to change. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Remember those pirates that came over from Rhode Island back in 1696? Robert Colley, Joseph Wheeler, Samuel Inless, that, that crew. Well, after their cruises with Cutlass Culliford, their careers took a turn for the worse. When Thomas Wheeler showed up in 1699 with his king's pardon, a lot of those pirates took it. Only 30 or 40 pirates decided to stay, and they had to escape. They did so in a ship's boat led by the former quartermaster, now Captain Nathaniel North. And here I'd like to take a second to look at the ceremony of being raised captain. This is a passage from a General History Volume 2, but it's quoted in a bunch of other works. Because it's been repeated so often, this has earned a kind of legitimacy, but it may or may not actually have any real truth to it. Still, it's worth a read. According to a general history, quote, The ceremony of this installation is, the crew, having made choice of him to command, they carry him a sword in a very solemn manner, and desire he will take upon him the command, as he is the most capable among them. He is led into the great cabin and placed at a table, where only one chair is set at the upper end and one at the lower end, for the company's quartermaster. The captain and quartermaster being placed, the latter succinctly tells him that the company do him the honor to elect him captain. The quartermaster takes up the sword, puts it into his hand, and says, This is the commission under which you are to act. May you prove fortunate to yourself and us. The guns are then fired, he is saluted with three cheers, and a large bowl of punch is ordered to every mess. End quote. Now, Captain North's boat didn't have any cabins at all, much less a great cabin. 
But the rest of that ceremony could have been carried out more or less. The presentation of a sword, firing of the guns, three cheers, and a round of drinks. But still, Captain North was going to need a better ship. Now, I don't really know who knew what here between about 1699 and 1701. Somehow... North and his men never seemed to have encountered Captain Reed or John Bowen or George Booth or any of those other pirates. I imagine he had to have known some of them were there, just never ran into them. He was pretty busy, honestly. Over the following 18 months or so, Captain North would upgrade his ship a couple of times, not to anything spectacular, he didn't have the crew for anything like that, but soon enough he was sailing what amounted to a sloop of war. And that's better, but it's still not great. These pirates had to pass up a lot of opportunities just because they didn't have the firepower to take a decent prize on the open water. And the crew was beginning to grow a bit restless. So Nathaniel North made a call. He decided that it would be best to stop hunting on the open water, and instead turned his eyes to coastal settlements. He was going to capture a town, loot it, and then hold it for ransom, like the buccaneers of old. His men elected to try their luck at, get this, Mayotte. An island that had played host to Thomas II, Henry Every, Robert Culliford, and most recently, George Booth, he was going to attack that relatively friendly settlement. Now, I'm pulling a lot of what I've talked about here today, especially all of that about Omani Africa, you know, the Comoros Islands and Zanzibar. I'm pulling it from an article by a man named Malin Newitt. Newitt is a retired professor who spent years teaching at King's College, and he's an expert in all of this stuff. The article I'm reading in particular is titled The Comoro Islands in Indian Ocean Trade Before the 19th Century. In it, Newitt writes, quote, The Comoros became a favorite spot for pirates to lay up and careen. As far as they could, the Comoro Islanders tried to remain neutral as this strange and savage contest developed. And right there he's talking about the power dynamics between the Dutch, English, and French in the region. He goes on, Inevitably, however, they became deeply involved. They had to look after crews marooned by the pirates and were forced to tolerate pirate captains bringing prizes to the islands to strip. There is some indication that they were prepared to buy from the pirates, though they certainly never assumed the role of fence to any major extent. In 1701, the inevitable occurred. Frustrated of prizes elsewhere, the pirate captain North led a plundering expedition against Ingazija and Mayat, capturing the sultan of the latter and holding him ransom. End quote. Now, Newitt is getting this snippet of information from a French naturalist named Grandidier who did a survey of the Comoros in the very early 20th century, like 1902 to 1904. But that passage is basically all we know about this raid. There are very few other details. However, we can look at the effects that this ransoming would have down the line. All of that 
begrudging acceptance that the people of Mayotte had for the English pirates, well, after they ransomed their sultan, all of that was out the window. All of the other Omani African territories, which already had about zero love for the pirates, well, they decided that, given this news, it would be a good idea to take a more proactive stance toward the English pirates in the region. Which brings us back to George Booth and John Bowen on board the speaker. After they had answered the questions of command, they began preparing to sail. Now, there's quite a bit happening here involving personnel that I'm going to wait until next time to talk about. There are a lot of pirates who are going to join up over the next couple of weeks that have played roles already, but some of them are going to play roles into the fairly distant pirate future. Their stories are just too large to fit in here today. So keep in mind, there's a lot of new pirates on board that we'll get to later. For now, once they had picked up all of these newcomers, the speaker had fully 240 men on board. Their plan really wasn't complicated. They were going to head up north, probably to the Gulf of Aden, where they would wait for some rich pilgrim ships and capture them. First, though, they needed some supplies. So the speaker sailed for the nearby Zanzibar Islands. Islands under the rule of the Sultanate of Oman. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 pirates disembarked. They were there to buy supplies, so they spread out into the marketplace. However, once the governor, you know, the, the sub-sultan, once he learned that a ship full of pirates had just arrived to uh, trade, he immediately thought of what Captain North had done at Mayotte. And first of all, I'm not sure that the governor didn't know that this wasn't Captain North. Moreover, I'm pretty sure that Captain Booth didn't know what Captain North had done. So, when a messenger came down from the governor's manor and delivered an invitation to Captain Booth to dine with the governor, Captain Booth accepted. He took fourteen of his men with him up to the governor's mansion. Now, we don't know who they were, but we do know that they're nobody we've met aside from George Booth. We also know that John Bowen wasn't on land. He was currently on board the speaker in command while the captain was ashore. The governor's manor house was really kind of a small fortress. It was surrounded by high stone walls that were topped with cannon which guarded the bay. At the gatehouse into the compound, the pirates were stopped with the utmost of courtesy. They were informed, though, that they couldn't be permitted to carry arms on the manor grounds. The pirates, though, they thought that was fine. You know, these all seemed like friendly fellows, so they were happy to hand over their pistols and swords and knives and any other weapons they might have on their person. Those weapons disappeared into the depths of the gatehouse. Meanwhile, back at the marketplace, there were small groups of pirates, you know, three or four men, buying all of the different supplies that they might need. Salt, beef, water, barrels, that kind of thing. I wonder if the market seemed unusually busy that evening. I mean, there would have been quite a few men just, you know, milling about, chatting with each other, sitting down to drink coffee, you know, just hanging out. I wonder if any of the pirates noticed that the men were giving them nervous looks or furtive glances. 
But if they did, I mean, these were pirates after all. It was a band of cutthroat foreigners armed to the teeth in the marketplace. Furtive looks would have been perfectly natural. But then, atop the walls, the cannons began to fire. All of the guns overlooking the bay, from the walls surrounding the manor house, they were firing at the speaker. And these guns going off seems to have acted as kind of a signal for the people of the capital city. In the marketplace, all of those men who had been milling around, hanging out, well, they all pulled swords out from their hiding places. And then, all of them rushed the pirates, slashing, stabbing, cutting down men anywhere they could find them. The people of Zanzibar didn't have guns, not the average citizen anyway. The pirates, though, did. They all drew their pistols, took aim, and fired. A couple of dozen balls of pistol shot cut a swath through the men of the marketplace. The pirates were able to duck through the hole that had been made and escape. But those who were in the manor house, including Captain Booth, well, they weren't so lucky. At the same moment that the cannon atop the wall began to fire, men rose up from behind the shrubbery, or from behind low walls, and many of them lining the large walls surrounding the compound, all of them aiming guns down at the pirates. The pirates, in the middle of the courtyard, totally exposed, well, they were just decimated. A few of them, including Captain Booth, they were still standing, but there really wasn't much they could do here. The guns had been fired, but all of these soldiers drew their swords and moved in for the kill. Dozens of men reached the pirates, stabbing into them over and over again, and soon enough, the ground was soaked in blood. Captain George Booth, along with his fourteen men, were all dead. Down by the beach, the pirates from the marketplace were running for their lives, as they ran through town, they seemed to find groups of angry locals waiting for them everywhere. They had to cut their way through more than a few of these heavily armed locals, but eventually they made it to the beach where their boats were waiting. Guarding the boats were nine pirates who had been left for that job. Those nine men were besieged by a few dozen men of Zanzibar. However... These pirates had guns, and they were well-schooled in the use of them. There were a few men out front, probably three or four, with their swords drawn, keeping the locals back. And behind them, the other pirates were loading their pistols, moving forward, firing them, stepping back, reloading, and doing it all again, all as quickly as possible. And for now, they were holding their own, better than most might expect in their situation, but it was clear that they weren't going to last. The pirates from the marketplace rushed forward to attack their assaulters from behind, but they got trapped themselves. All of the people from town appeared, seemingly as one behind them, trapping those pirates between those on the beach and themselves. It looked very much like they would soon all be overwhelmed and killed. But then, out of the darkness, down the beach... The men heard a bellowed roar, and into the firelight charged John Bowen, followed by a dozen men, all armed with a number of pistols ready to fire, and fire they did. The men of Zanzibar were cut down in droves. It was 
such a sudden, shocking assault that they retreated down the beach to escape this sudden death that had fallen upon them, and that gave the pirates the moment they needed, just enough time to get in their boats and escape. No one understood how John Bowen had gotten to the beach so quickly, how he had gotten there in time. It would have been impossible to get from the speaker to the beach in the amount of time that had passed since the cannons began to fire. But appear he had, like a superhero, he'd saved all of their lives. When the pirates got back to their ship, the speaker was already drifting out to sea. But she was doing so without a captain. George Booth was dead. However, by morning, John Bowen would be presented with a sword, and the speaker would have a new captain. Before we go today, a couple of notes. First, Gunsway Sally wrote to ask me if I had ever managed to find that show from BBC Wales that I was looking for about uh, Culver Hole. I exhausted all of the BBC services available in America that I know of anyway, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. So my answer is, unfortunately, no. I never got to watch it. Now, I would like to thank all of the people who sent me suggestions about how to see it. There were a bunch of you, and they were all good suggestions, but... Unfortunately, most of them would have been, you know, piracy. And we all know how we feel about that around here. So, no, sadly, I never got to see it. If I had, though, I would probably say that it was a fascinating documentary about a bit of Welsh history, but not as relevant to the story I wanted to tell as I hoped it would be. That's, you know, what I would say, anyway. Second, to Peter, who wrote me and said some very kind things about the show. Peter also shared with me a few of his personal struggles, and man, it, it sounds like you went through it. But I've got to say, Peter, I'm glad you're doing well. It sounds like everything's going all right. And if, in some small way, the show here managed to keep you entertained while you were going through everything, well, that's about the best I can hope for. So, going forward, good luck and Godspeed. Next time, we're going to spend the episode talking about all of those pirates who joined up before they went to Zanzibar, telling their stories and introducing them to the crew of the speaker. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Face of an angel all battered by ground.
Tonight.